Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host the series with Ellen Datlow, normally on the third Wednesday of every month, but next month we're switching to the second Wednesday of the month from then on, so please update your schedules if you have us in the third month. Um, there's never a cover charge to come into the KGB bar, but we ask that you buy a drink and tip your bartender hard or soft, stay hydrated, stay thirsty, all that good stuff. Please do. You support the bar, you support the series, you keep us here for as long as possible. So I'm excited about our readers tonight. I've read their work uh, before. I've actually published uh, Veronica's work and I've, I've uh, enjoyed Richard's work and in the places I've read it and I'm really excited to have them with us. Um, before we get started, I just want to announce that both of them have books for sale. Richard has The Adventurists. So you can come up and buy, and buy a copy and get it signed. And Veronica has, can I just show everybody? Newly in paperback, Burning Girls and Other Stories. So come up, buy a book, get it signed. Um, by the way, I just want to say like both of these covers are really fantastic. Um, you know, there are a lot of book covers out there in the world. I saw, if I saw this like across a bookstore, I'd be like, ooh, what's that? That looks really fascinating, both of them. This is like great, great cover art. So thank you guys. Please, please buy, buy them if you can, if you can afford to. Um, so before we get on to our readings tonight, um, just talk about our upcoming uh, readings. As I said, we're moving to the second Wednesday of the month. Uh, next month, September 14th, Nassim Jamnia and Nick Kaufman, Nicholas Kaufman. Hope you'll join us for that. October 12th, Clay McLeod Chapman and Meg Ellison. November, uh, November 9th, Stephanie Feldman and Eileen Gunn. December 14th, Richard Kadri and Cassandra Kaw. And January, we have on the, on the schedule Christopher M. Savasco. Uh, so hope you'll... Uh, You'll be, you'll be there for that, and we hope we'll be here for that. So again, please buy a drink. Um, our first reader is Richard Butner. Richard Butner's short fiction has appeared in Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, been shortlisted for the Speculative Literature Foundation's Fountain Award, and nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award. His collection, The Adventurist, was published by Small Beer Press in March. He lives in North Carolina, where he runs the annual Sycamore Hill Writers Conference. Here's Richard Button. Right there. Thanks, y'all. Uh, someone in the back, let me know if you can hear me. Thumbs, thumbs up? All right, cool. Uh, thanks for coming out. 
Uh, it's really great to be here. I'm going to read the beginning of the very last story in the book, The Adventurists, which I think I have two copies of now for sale, but um, would love to offload those before I fly back to North Carolina. So uh, it's the beginning of the story, so I'm just going to start reading it. The story is called Sunnyside. The rental that she booked was in the meatpacking district. They both knew it was going to be small, and yet they still weren't prepared for how cramped it was. How to fit themselves into the puzzle of the studio apartment, which was half the size of the guest bedroom back in Georgia. The house where she still lived, the house he had not lived in for 16 years. They both thought of making a meatpacking joke, but then decided against it. <laughs> Viv was unloading her cosmetics bag into the tiny bathroom when she finally decided to bring up the one aspect of the gathering that she had not yet mentioned to Stephen. It's going to be mostly virtual, she said. A virtual wake. Yeah, I don't think the word wake was technically used. We have to get in these things, abnormative clamps, they're called. What? He was grappling with the fold-out futon, which she had offered to sleep on so that he could have the bed. Abnormative clamp, full-body virtual rig. You know I can barely stand to look at my phone, he said. This is a lot better than your phone. The letter from his assistant explained it. You can take a drug before if you want. She left the bathroom to fish around in her purse for the letter. It had been addressed to them both. I don't take drugs anymore. I thought you stopped too. Not those kind of drugs, she said. Stuff so you don't get sick. We came to New York to get into some kind of virtual thing with a bunch of people we don't really know. Couldn't we have stayed in Georgia and done that? They don't have abnormative clamps in Georgia. <laughs> she threw a tube of lip balm at his head. As violent as ever, he said. What else are you not telling me about this wake? Do you know who else is going to be there? The letter didn't say. I just said that it was going to be a small gathering of his closest friends. Maybe you can add to your autograph collection. You know everything else. We go to his place, meet the bright lights, clamber into the virtual world, pop some virtual champagne, I guess. Champagne for my real friends, he said. What's the executor's name again? Kirthi, his executive assistant right up to the end. I guess her address database is kind of old, having us both at the same address. Maybe Jimmy left you a little something you can hang over the couch. Something tasteful, without too many buttholes. <laughs> Maybe that's where the wake is going to take place, she said, inside a virtual butthole. <laughs> Do abnormative clamps have smell-o-vision? That would be so very Jimmy. She plunked down on the futon, which made Stephen stand up. I sure miss that guy. I, I mean, I've missed him for years now. You mean James St. Jack. Jimmy Jack. I think he liked that I called him that. I hope he did. Hey, at least you got to see him the last time he came home. I had to work. Story of our lives. I had to work. You want to walk instead of taking the subway? We've got plenty of time before the party. Yeah. Search for churches on your precious phone. We should go pray for Jimmy's soul. He'd hate that. My dear... My ex-dear, he would love it, she said. Half of his works, his faintings, yes, faintings, half of them might as well be hanging up in some old European cathedrals we'll never see, except for the buttholes.
They had dinner at an overpriced Italian restaurant in Chelsea. It seemed to be the only place that didn't have a line out the door or a two-hour wait for a table. He didn't finish his fettuccine Alfredo. They both got double espressos after the meal, clinked them together. To Jimmy, who taught us about espresso and so many other things, she said. The gateway drug to Bohemia, he replied, trying and failing to replicate Jimmy's voice, equal parts gravel and squeak. I drove by the old Rainbow Cafe the other day when I was getting my oil changed. It's a law office now. I didn't see any commemorative plaque, though. From 1978 to 1981, renowned artist James St. Jack drank espresso and stole magazines here while wearing a sequined frock coat and rings on all ten fingers. They walked north on the High Line. It was hot for October and the path was crowded. After getting jostled for the fifth time, he suggested that they sit on a bench. We're still running early. Let's gather our energies. They plunked down facing east into the city. The neon sign of the New Yorker Hotel beamed down at them. She took a photo. That's where Tesla died, it says, she related after fiddling more on her phone. You think his buddies got together and hooked themselves up to some alternating current to celebrate? Tesla died in poverty, probably friendless. Let's think about Jimmy, not Tesla. That time we came to visit, when was it, 87? A whole different city. No, must have been 86. That was right before Warhol discovered him and Warhol died in 87. I just remember how hot it was in that shoebox he was living in on Eldridge Street. And it reeked of vinegar from that dark room he had set up in the toilet. We tried to get really fucked up so we wouldn't mind sleeping on the floor with the rest of the vermin, she said. We succeeded. <laughs> I remember even then his little hospitalities. He was broke and all around him his friends were dying, but he got us into drag night at the pyramid for free because he knew the bouncer. And then after one last lost weekend, we got on a bus and went back home. And a few months later, he got touched by the hand of Andy. Thanks to Smurfette and Adiamene. Yeah, Smurfette, my last modeling job. You ever look at that one, fainting number one? Can't stand it. I just think about how hard it was to get the blue stuff off. <laughs> the crowd thinned out and they got up and walked the rest of the way to Jimmy's apartment, a long hike up to Central Park. The doorman looked at their invitation and made them show ID as well. Then he let, him, let them through to the elevators. And then they were there in Jimmy's place, high up in the corner of a big new glass building. The floor-to-ceiling windows looked out onto the green lawns, the trees, and the massive outcroppings of bedrock in the park. The walls were surprisingly devoid of art. Almost everything was either black, gray, or clear. When they walked in, a woman clad all in black asked their names. She directed them to a bar counter where a phalanx of glasses of sparkling wine stood. That's Kirthi, Viv said, the executive assistant. Yeah, she's got her own band, too, the halftones. You really keep up. I don't read the articles. You never read the articles about Jimmy? I don't read the articles. I just look at the butthole paintings. <laughs> of course. And then Kirthi was back, helping herself to a glass of wine. I'm glad you're here, she confided. James always spoke of you fondly. She was wearing a tiny enameled pin on her lapel of the Bad Big Wolf. The Bad Big Wolf was one of Jimmy's creations, sort of a trickster nemesis character. The Bad Big Wolf appeared somewhere in all of his works. That's great to hear, Viv said. His will was very clear as to who was to be invited. Of course, there's no way to force people to conform to his wishes. That'd be a real jack-wagon move to be invited to this and not come, Stephen said. Indeed, Kirthi said. 
With that, they all took another sip of wine. There were a few others there already, all of them at the peripheries of the big main room next to the windows or back in the dark recesses. Stephen thought he recognized an old friend and then realized it was just an actress he'd seen on TV. Vera something or other. He tried to remember if he'd seen her naked. Viv noticed Stephen staring. The door opened again and Kirthi went off to attend to it. He drained the rest of his wine. Viv made the old signal her hand cutting the air over her glass that he should slow it down. She barely touched hers. He set his glass near one of several giant sinks cut into the black granite countertop. Why can't we just tell stories here in the real world, he said. Why can't one of these people give me their annual shoe budget, which I could probably live off of? <laughs> he shoved his empty hands into his pockets, fiddling with the change. We'll tell stories, she said. It'll just be inside this virtual world that Jimmy left for us. I'm going to find the bathroom. Wish me luck. Kirthi checked back in with him, offered him another glass of champagne, but he waved it off. There was an enormous spread of food, too, but he was still feeling bloated from the Italian place, so he just stood there, trying to look fascinated by the tears of sushi and macarons. He thought about drinking champagne with Jimmy. The only time he'd done that was at their high school reunion, of all things. The 10th, maybe the 15th? One of those. Jimmy was famous by then, and he made a rare visit to town and hired a limo. They spent 10 minutes at the reunion itself before leaving to just ride around drinking the most expensive champagne that was available, playing a mixtape that Viv had made. They sang along with all the songs at the top of their lungs, sometimes while standing up out of the moon roof. Squeezes another nail in my heart, talking heads once in a lifetime. And their song, Sa Plan Pour Moi by Plastique Bertrand. Three minutes of French new wave nonsense. <laughs> Jimmy had found some local heavy metal boy to hang out with, a skinny blonde guy with long hair and a top hat. Recently, the last two times Stephen had a pizza delivered to his apartment, he could have sworn it was the same guy, just older and bigger and now bald. Stephen tipped him extra both times, and the guy said, thanks, bro, both times, but they didn't mention Jimmy. Viv came back from the bathroom just as another guest rolled in the door. Hello, darling, he said at top volume to Kirthi. He did the triple air kiss and then immediately turned and started shaking hands and air kissing with the other folks who were standing near the giant windows. He was wearing a black leather jacket and a white silk scarf, more black, and then some crazy running shoes that were green and yellow and blue and red. Parrot shoes. It was that British actor guy who also sang and danced, a real triple threat, Joe Ardmore. One of those guys who would do character roles in movies and then be on tour singing songs to benefit East Timor or wherever, and then on Broadway in a revival of Camelot. A video had been making the rounds on social media recently, Joe doing a song at a grand piano on an otherwise empty stage in an old theater. Red velvet curtains, gilded woodwork. The song was all about the little complaints everyone has about life but how all our lives are special and individual and should be appreciated in the moment at all times. In the close-ups, you could see tears in Joe's eyes, standing ovation at the end. Joe made his way to the drinks counter. Hey, it's great to see you, he said to Stephen, even though they'd never met. Joe kept going, greeting Viv and then moving on, and the party reconfigured itself around him. Folks drifted toward him in the center of the room instead of occupying the periphery. Maybe they thought he was about to burst into song. He's tinier than I thought he'd be, Viv said. 
Yeah, they usually are. Jimmy wasn't. Stephen nodded and then did his one party trick, moonwalking the length of the floor behind the kitchen counter. Everyone else was focused on Joe Ardmore and didn't notice. Viv clapped without making a sound. We need to meet these folks, he said. We could make some connections. Maybe Joe Ardmore needs an office manager. And you could be his personal bartender. Wacky adventures ensue. I get the feeling he's got an office manager and a bartender and probably lots of other staff, a personal trainer and a smoothie chef. I bet none of them have wacky adventures, at least not while on the clock. He pulled in a long breath and then sighed it back out. What is it, she said. It's hitting me again. Never. I hate how never feels. He pulled a handkerchief from his back pocket and dabbed at his eyes. She reached for it when he was done. Kirthi had pulled a stool over to one end of the room and stood on top of it. Viv handed him back the hanky and he carefully folded it before putting it away. The others were still clumped up and talking and drinking. Kirthi opened her palms to the crowd. Good evening, everyone. I'm so glad that you all could be here. We're just waiting on one more guest and then we'll get started. If anyone needs to use one of the bathrooms, please do so now. Once you're inside the abnormative clamps, you'll be in for the evening. A woman with a salt and pepper ponytail and snakeskin cowboy boots groaned. A hunky older guy in a tight white t-shirt strode off purposefully down the hall. Kirthi stepped down from the stool and pulled out her phone. Snakeskin boots lady came over to them. She seemed to be about their age, about Jimmy's age. You guys must be the hometown gang, she said. Jimmy's school chum. She extended a hand that bore a ring with a giant purple stone. Neither Stephen nor Viv could tell if she was earnest or making fun. That's us, Stephen offered and shook her hand. Well, let me tell you, I am charmed to finally meet you two darlings, the woman said. I'm Demanda Langlois, James Gallerus. He always liked keeping his friends segregated. We're kind of self-segregated, Viv said. It's nice to meet you. We're waiting on the ballerina, Marina Versovich. James talked about her constantly, and of course she was in so many of his later faintings. But could I ever meet her? No! And he knew I loved the ballet! <laughs> Demanda emptied her champagne glass and then reached for another. Before either of them could respond, Demanda continued. Now, Andy, if he liked you, he would introduce you to anyone. But James had to keep us all in separate boxes. I guess it's something to do with his generation. So many of them died so young, I don't really know. He had such a knack for changing the subject. If I asked about his other friends, suddenly we'd be talking about shoe shopping. If I asked him why he hadn't produced so much work these last few years, suddenly we'd be talking about the comic books we read as kids. We were both big fans of Aquaman. <laughs> Kirthi started up again from atop the stool. She's on her way, so let me just go over the ground rules again, which you should have received with your invitation. Demanda looked at them and rolled her, eye, rolled her eyes and shook her head as if actually reading an invitation was something far beneath her. I don't know how many of you consume virtual reality on a regular basis. Jimmy has been working inside the abnormative clamp for a few years now. Demanda knitted her brow. Evidently, this was as much a surprise for her as it was for them. Jimmy was known for his altered photographs, which he called faintings, psychedelic Rococo tableau that usually featured one or more extremes of existence, celebrity and pornography, blood and guts, ballerinas and bodybuilders. 
Jimmy working in a feathered suit while a team of assistants handed him cameras, that was easy to picture. Jimmy hacking on some kind of virtual reality tech, that was harder to imagine. Tight t-shirt guy was back from the bathroom and he was fondling a version of the bad big wolf that sat as a centerpiece on the food table. It seemed to have a mouth made of precious stones, rubies for a tongue, pearls and shards of quartz for teeth. Maybe t-shirt guy was appreciating it or maybe he was wondering it if he got it in the will. The door flew open and in came the late arrival. It was Marina Versovich, principal ballerina, recently retired. I'm so sorry, she announced cheerfully. Marina heaved her huge purse onto one of the couches as if she lived there and continued on in a beeline for the champagne. Kirthi nodded and continued, Once you're in the clamp, if you come out, you cannot go back in this evening. If anything is uncomfortable when you first get in the rig, have the technician assist you. That's why she's here. Mr. St. Jack left no further instructions for this event, and in fact, explicitly stated there were to be no more instructions. I am to say this, however, Nay, Obiviscaris, do not forget. Kirthi opened a side door and gestured for them to descend the stairs revealed there. Everyone trundled down, Stephen and Viv last in line. There are engraved invitations to indicate which unit is yours, Kirthi said. They stood in what looked like an exercise room or a dance studio with mirrored walls and a rubberized floor. Some dumbbell racks and other gear were pushed to one side of the room. There were a dozen abnormative clamps in a circle, all tethered to a console in the middle where the technician sat, making adjustments. I didn't expect an engraved invitation, Stephen said, and Viv elbowed him in the ribs. They found their pods, which were next to each other. To either side of them was tight t-shirt guy and the ballerina. The markings on the units were simple and clear. You stepped in and leaned back and double-tapped a switch with the back of your head, and the unit sealed up around you. Oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, the ballerina said. I had a panic attack during my last MRI and I can't do confined spaces anymore. Why can't we have a nice wake on the roof or something? I'm with her, Stephen whispered. Yeah, I bet you are, Viv said. Good luck with that. Kirthi and the technician came over and had a hushed conversation with the ballerina. The only thing he could make out was something about uh, the transition is instantaneous and you won't feel confined for more than a second. The tech stuck a patch on each side of the ballerina's neck. The ballerina looked over at Stephen and glared, and he blushed as he realized that he had been staring. He leaned back into the pneumatic supports of the pod and then jerked his head back twice. The suit closed up around him. For an instant, everything was black and quiet, and he felt as if he were floating. But then gravity zoomed back, and he was standing in the apartment exercise room again, outside of the clamp. This is it, he said turning to look at Viv, who was as puzzled as he was. She looked the same, but she was dressed differently. Red mariner sweater over a plaid shirt. He looked down and noticed that his clothes had changed as well. He sported a down vest, navy corduroy shirt, jeans. You're in the antechamber of the experience, just for calibration purposes, the voice of Kirthi said, but he didn't see her in the room. So what's next? Charades, said Joe Ardmore. Name that tune. He had lost his black garb and parrot shoes. Now he had on a white Lacosta shirt and short shorts and a white tennis visor. Walk down the new hallway next to the front door. And indeed there was a new hallway. A narrow passage leading off into what should have been another apartment in the building. 
Viv and Stephen went in neither first nor last. It was almost completely dark except for some luminescent dust on the baseboards. It was a maze that switched back on itself, and he became completely disoriented. Although part of his brain was telling him that he must have walked outside the bounds of the building into empty space over Manhattan. She couldn't see the person in front of her and kept one hand out front and still bumped into the person ahead of her at one point because the whole line had stopped in the dark. The passageway opened up and they were outside, although not 14 stories above Manhattan. They were in a park full of trees and rolling hills. They had emerged from a dark doorway set in a brick wall, all of them in their 1981 finery. Stephen and Viv both knew exactly where they were. They were at the picnic shelter in Sunnyside Park, back home. It was the golden hour. Under the shelter itself, it was dim, and a weak streetlight had just come on. Well, this is quaint as fuck, Joe Ardmore said. Thank you. So buy the book to find out the ending. Buy the book anyway. He's got a couple of copies. I have a drink. We'll be back in about 10 minutes and enjoy, you know, everything. there. Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We're very happy to be here. I missed it last month because I was finally negative the day before KGB and I just didn't want to take a chance to come back <laughs> for you guys and for me. But anyway, our second reader tonight is Veronica Shinnis. She's a writer whose debut short story collection, Burning Girls and Other Stories, appeared in paperback from tour.com in June. She's got copies that you will want to buy, and Richard has a couple of copies of his book left. You're going to want to buy after they finish reading. This is too high. Okay. Um, Veronica is also an associate professor in the English Department of Queens College, C-U-N-Y. In both guises, she works with fairy tales and fantasy. Please welcome Veronica Shanks. Thank you so much. This is a story I haven't read out before, and it's about taking, using folklore to take bloody revenge on badly behaved middle-aged men. <laughs> the revenant is the one who comes back. The revenant comes back from the dead, but home is gone, so all that is left is haunting. And the revenant is a fantasy that our emotions and will are powerful enough to overcome even death. The Revenant tells us that all is not dust and ashes. Our pain persists, our pain matters. We can leave a mark on the spaces and people we knew. We can force them to witness our suffering, our rage. The Revenant comes back because even death cannot blunt the edge of our thirst for revenge, cannot solve our wounds. Because there is no solace for what has been lost, even in death. We all die in the end, and sometimes we die in pieces rather than all at once. Like phantom limbs, phantoms, revenants, only come into being once something has died. The arm, the eye, the breast, once vivid and pulsing with blood, for the blood is the life, you'll recall, is no longer part of you. It has died, but its pain remains. Often the phantom limb feels like it's in a distorted, painful position. 
The sensations are not only pain. Sometimes someone with a phantom limb will feel as if they are gesturing with the missing part or try to pick something up with a hand no longer attached. Literature tells us that phantom pain usually decreases in frequency and intensity as time goes by, as the death of the body part recedes further and further into the past. There is something missing from me. Sometimes I forget it's gone and try to use it, like I see other people doing. But you can't hold a teacup with a phantom hand, and soon enough I am reminded. Here's a girl. She's 16 years old, but not the sexy 16 of television and movies. She still wears the clothing her mother picks out for her. She's skinny and gangly. She doesn't wear makeup. Her hair's a mess. She likes science fiction and watches a lot of BBC shows like Blake Seven. Oh yeah, you know. She has a group of friends, geeky, just like her, although she's beginning to get into punk rock and they are not. She is reasonably happy. This will not last long. If you are a married 45-year-old man who notices that a teenage girl has a crush on you, there is, there is a variety of things you might think and do. You might think, she's young enough to be my daughter and stay away from her. You know this is nothing but trouble waiting to happen. You might talk to her, hear about her father's recent desertion. You could then be straight with her, tell her that what she wants isn't what she thinks it is and you're not going to do it. You might just enjoy flirting with her. There's nothing wrong with that, after all. You might have her give you a blowjob in the urine-soaked hallway of the apartment building where she is living. And if you do that, it really doesn't matter what you were thinking. You're an asshole. In the 1970s, a folk practice never before seen sprung up across the United States. Teenage girls assured each other that if you turned off all the lights in the bathroom and brought in a lit candle and chanted Bloody Mary three times while staring into the mirror, Bloody Mary would come out and wreak horrible violence, drinking your blood, scratching your eyes out, or sometimes taking revenge on someone who has wronged you. Sometimes. Alan Dundee's The Venerable Folklore Scholar theorized that this practice has something to do with anxieties about menstruation and all it symbolizes. And maybe he was correct, but I don't think so. Maybe he's not correct. Maybe the blood drawn by Bloody Mary isn't a metaphor for sexual maturity or womanhood or anything like that. Maybe it's exactly what it seems, the blood of undirected rage, of violence. After all, Adolescent girls have a lot to be angry about. Anyway, there's no Bloody Mary in the mirror. Everybody knows that. All you ever get in the mirror is a reflection of yourself, captured pieces of your own soul. Phantom limb pain can be treated by watching yourself in the mirror moving the missing limb into a more comfortable position. Remember, in the mirror, left is right and right is left. It seems genuinely to work. I have looked into many mirrors in my time bathroom mirrors, subway windows, plate glass shop windows, dressing room mirrors, but I have never chanted Bloody Mary. Not yet. The same girl, a year later, under a mask of liquid eyeliner and bright red lipstick. She spends two hours every morning blow drying her hair straight. She wears lycra mini skirts and torn fishnet stockings. She looks absurdly young and almost feral. She has thrown all her geeky science fiction books away, even the Blake Seven episode guide. And the group of friends has long since expelled her from their ranks. She comes home at five in the morning with a beer and whiskey on her breath, and her schoolwork lies untouched. 
I've never had a romantic relationship that's lasted longer than a handful of months. Well, 20 years ago, I had a long-distance relationship that lasted a, a year and a half. It ended with my partner saying, I think of you more as a best friend than as a lover, and breaking up with me. And I thought that was pretty rich, given that we'd been fucking for quite some time with every evidence that he had enjoyed it. But he's not the only one to have said that. They can't quite articulate what's missing, these partners. They think I'm an awesome person, and I am so important to them, and they love me. They're just not in love with me. They don't feel romantic about me. The sex is awesome, they assure me. That's not it. It's something else. They can't quite put their finger on it. They don't know why. I know why. Don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. If you are a 45-year-old married man and a teenage girl has a crush on you, here's an easy way to captivate her. Take her seriously. Almost nobody takes teenage girls seriously. If you do, if you sit and listen to her and respond to her interests, her likes and dislikes, as though she were a real person with real legitimate thoughts and opinions, she will be yours. It helps, of course, if you have had interesting experiences to tell her about. If she likes punk rock, for instance, and you were in a band that played CBGB in Max's Kansas City back in the day, you can be sure that she will want to hear all about it. And while you are telling her, she will gaze at you with wide, impressed, admiring eyes. Children's eyes. Here's what happened. One morning over the summer when she was 16, she woke up late and staggered into the bathroom to brush her teeth and overheard her parents talking. Her mother happily told her father that she was off to buy him a present for their 20th wedding anniversary. Her father responded by announcing that he had met someone else and was leaving her. The girl sat on the edge of the bathtub in her pajamas and listened to the conversation. Her father was very calm and collected, which was unusual. Usually he stormed and raged during fights. Her mother was neither calm nor collected. Richard, may I ask you to pass me my glass of seltzer, which I forgot about? Oh well, thank you. Her mother was neither calm nor collected. Thank you. She sobbed hysterically, and her daughter hated her for it. It was embarrassing, was what it was, and frightening also. During a lull in the conversation, her, the girl crept back into her bedroom and got dressed in the clothing her mother had picked out for her, a white t-shirt, pink shorts, and white sandals. She looked clunky with two long limbs. When she finally went out into the living room, her mother was immobile on the couch and weeping. Her father gave her $20 and told her to go away. She took the mother, she took the money. That's a Freudian slip. <laughs> she took the money, bought some women's magazines, and went to a local cafe. There's more to the story, of course. Her father does not stay this calm. Eventually, her mother stops crying and gets up off the couch. And that cafe isn't there anymore. The neighborhood I grew up in, and here we are, is almost unrecognizable now. I used to have friends who weren't allowed to come visit. It was that kind of neighborhood when I was young. But it was a mix of working class families and bohemian artists and musicians. And there were baby supply shops and there were dive bars. Now it's very chi-chi and only stockbrokers and rock stars can afford to live there. And my mother, whose apartment is rent stabilized. But I can still see echoes as I walk down the street. 
I still know where everything used to be. So I wait until late one night after dark and I leave my four-year-old son with a sitter and head down to Avenue A, which is of course alive with light and noise at that hour, even on a Tuesday. So I go into one of the side streets where an Irish cafe used to be, where I ate brown bread with butter and drank tea while my mother sobbed on the couch. And I lean in close to the plate glass of the jewelry shop occupying the space now. And I whisper, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. There is a pause, pregnant with the possibility of my dead self reborn, and into it I whisper, wait. And then I go home and pay the babysitter and check on my sleeping son and slip back into my own bed and wait for him to wake me up in the morning. The thing you want to remember about teenagers is that while they like to act cynical and like they've seen it all, they're really very naive. As you can imagine, this is quite an advantage if you were a married 45-year-old man and trying to seduce one. All sorts of lines that would send a grown woman into gales of laughter or cause her to roll her eyes at you will have their full romantic effect on a teenage girl. You can tell her, for instance, that she resembles the girlfriend you had when you were 18, and she won't snort scornfully at you, even if she is a New York City Jewess and you grew up in Southeast Ireland and the likelihood of you having known anyone who looked like her in your youth is close to nil. You can even stare deeply into her eyes and tell her that age doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is how two people feel about each other. And she won't shake her head in disgust and immediately dismiss it as a pathetically transparent attempt at emotional manipulation, to say nothing of nonsense. It'll work. Years later, she will come to regret this and feel deeply ashamed of her own naivete. But you needn't worry about that. If you're the sort of middle-aged married man who is doing this sort of thing, no doubt you won't. Who doesn't love the first few weeks or months of a romantic relationship? Those giddy, heady times when you're drunk on love and sex and the new partner seems perfect and all you want is to stay in their arms all day and all of the night and then maybe wander hand in hand, presenting each other with flowers and staring deeply into each other's eyes over glasses of champagne at brunch and maybe take long walks on beaches. I don't. You can't trust all that. People say things they turn out not to mean. The first few weeks for me are full of painful disbelief. I love you, they say. You don't have to say that. I love you, though. It's OK if you don't, if you want to go on dating other people. We haven't agreed to be exclusive. I love you, but they don't mean it. Because a few months later, I really fall in love when I feel secure, when I feel like I can trust them, really, truly trust them. And then it's like relaxing into a deep, warm bath. And I finally allow myself to believe every word they said. And by that time, they're no longer so enamored. And it's unfair because they said, and I believed them. And now they're saying they didn't mean I love you like that. They didn't mean romantic love. They meant camaraderie or some such nonsense. And all the water turns to ice and I am trapped and can't move. There's something missing from me, some piece of my soul that just isn't there anymore, and I can't believe in the champagne and the long walks on the beach while they're happening. I don't trust the, what's the word? Oh yes, limerence. The missing piece, she died a long time ago. I was so young, she was so young. She loses most of her friends after her parents split. After all, they're only kids too and don't know how to deal with her constant simmering tension and anger. She spends school lunchtimes huddled by herself at the top of the elementary school jungle gym listening to punk rock on her Walkman. But she does find refuge in a downtown bar that doesn't take the drinking age too seriously. 
The bar hosts a local band on Saturday nights. It's made up of men who've been on the scene for years, men in their 40s. The music is good and the bar is packed and she's heard that Joe Strummer used to hang out there when he lived in the city. It's true. Eventually she develops a crush on the singer who has a certain amount of seedy, dissipated charisma. At first she doesn't pay her much mind. Not only is he much older than her and married, but he also has a mistress. She's only four years older than the girl in question with long black hair, perfectly arched eyebrows and Celtic knotwork tattoos around her upper arms. She's an artist. So the singer doesn't have the time or the inclination to notice the girl. But you shouldn't mistake this for an ethical or moral choice on his part. Right now, she's still gawky, awkward, and gangly. Eventually, she will stop straightening her hair and wear slightly longer skirts. Eventually, she will become lithe, even somewhat appealing. Eventually, his mistress will move to another country. One thing you should prepare yourself for, if you are a middle-aged married man betting a teenage girl, is the difference between porn movie virgins and an actual real live teenage girl who has never had sex before. In porn, or perhaps in your fantasies, a virgin is dewy, pliable, and wide-eyed, given to making unsolicited gasps at the size of your cock, amenable to every guidance and suggestion. A real teenage girl, however, one who hasn't had sex before, is somewhat different. For one thing, she will be painfully self-conscious and extraordinarily anxious about what you think of her. She will not know what she is supposed to be doing at any given moment or how she is supposed to be feeling, and she will very likely freeze up. Of course, you can make this sort of thing work to your advantage. You, after all, will know what you are doing, what you like, and what you want, and she will not be in a position to question you or object. She won't want you to think she's not cool. She doesn't want to be a disappointment. But be aware, she's probably not enjoying herself. She's quite likely numb with embarrassment and dissociating like mad. That may be precisely what you want. She does know that she doesn't like it when you push her head down. I have never met a woman who does. You don't have to care. When the Revenant emerges from the plate glass shop window onto the East Village, she is in the form of a young woman, of course, the Belle of Avenue A, as the old song goes. Poor girl, she must be so confused. The city has changed around her so drastically. Well, that is what cities do, of course, but without even trash and vaudeville as a reliable landmark, how will she find her way around? Where is she going? Well, I imagine she has an appointment, don't you? For so long, I felt only guilt and shame and humiliation about that part of my life for so long. But revenants come back thirsting for vengeance and blood. And they have already died, so there is nothing left to lose. Manhattan is mostly a grid, and the street signs are the same, so I think the revenant corner of my soul will get her bearings soon enough. And when she does, I think she'll head for Soho. Sooner or later, the question will arise of how you can get rid of this smitten teenage girl. If you have not sufficiently prepared yourself for the experiences described in our last tutorial, it may well arise the first time you take her to bed. It may arise the first time you take her to bed in any case if you're that sort of man. You will want to be prepared. One option is, of course, to talk to her. Play the guilt-ridden husband. Tell her that you adore your wife and you simply can't go on in this way. 
It's hard to actually pull this one off if you've been fucking a woman only four years older than this girl for several years without displaying a single pang of conscience. Another option is to simply ignore her. It is easier to do this if you've been growing tired of her and dialing down the level of your attentions for some time anyway. But simply ignoring her the next time you see her may not be quite enough. She may first react by going to ever greater lengths to coax a smile from you, and you will have to remain steadfast in your disdain. You must behave in such a way as to make her wonder if she was hallucinating your earlier pursuit of her. If you persevere in this, she will come to be completely off balance. If you play your cards right, she will even blame herself for having been so foolish as to expect you to care about her. Remember, she has never done this before, and she has no standard against which to measure your behavior. You are her reality check. There is one danger to this approach, and you should be aware of it. Teenage girls are immature. If you flirt with other young women while standing directly in front of her, she may haul off and kick, and kick you on the ankle, causing you to fall over in front of the other young woman. If she does, it will be the only part of this experience that she does not later regret. <laughs> I'm just going to skip a little um, down to here. She's gone to a bar. She's found the uh, formerly middle-aged, now slightly rather more aged man. What do I want the bell to do to him there? He wants what he has always wanted until he didn't want her anymore. I would like her to lean in and suck all the love that has been given him out of his soul. I would like her to breathe in and strip him of his decades-long marriage, of his memories of first love in Ireland, of his time with his mistress, of every significant romantic relationship he's ever had, and then to release him, let him go home to an empty house and a life without the kind of love he took so much for granted. I want her to take from him what he took from me. But don't be ridiculous. That's not possible, not even for a revenant. What the fuck do you think this is, Azkaban? <laughs> Revenants don't come back to rip away your memories and your love. Revenants come back for vengeance. Revenants come back for blood. Stop there. you can buy the books <clears throat> have another drink uh, come back next month uh, second Wednesday of the month did I forget anything oh you can sign up for our, our uh, mailing, mailing list how uh, just go to kgbfantasticfiction.org well you can find it on our website fantastic fiction at kgb so thank you very much and uh, come and buy some books <laughs>you have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB reading series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.